Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Ovarian Cancer Treatment Updates. This is such an important program, and we have just wonderful speakers on today's program. And today's program is supported by GlaxoSmithKline. I really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now, we have um, a lot of you on the call today. There's over 155 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have today on the call international participants from Australia, Canada, Nigeria, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. And it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, I just have a few questions I'd like to ask you, um, and um, it'll probably only take about two minutes. And for those of you who are live streaming the call, um, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll also be able to hear me read them and you'll be able to rate your answer. So I'm going to start with the first question. On a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the importance of staging, testing, and precision medicine in informing the treatment for ovarian cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. The next question is, I understand the current standard of care, new treatment approaches, and follow-up care for ovarian cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the treatment options for recurrent ovarian cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand how to manage the symptoms, side effects, discomfort, and pain of ovarian cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. I understand the significance of clinical trials for ovarian cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I just want to thank everyone for participating in these questions, um, those of you who are live streaming. It really helps us to get a good sense of what you know coming into the program. It also helps us to be sure we plan programs that best meet your needs. So thank you so much. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Carolyn Runowitz. Dr. Runowitz is Executive Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Florida International University, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine. And Dr. Ronimus will be addressing an overview of ovarian cancer, including staging in the context of COVID-19, how precision medicine and testing inform your treatment decisions, the increasing role of telehealth 
telemedicine appointments, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology and prepared list of questions. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Runowitz. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I enjoyed participating in these series. I find them very informative, and the questions that the patients and audience ask are always very, always very insightful. I'm also honored to be part of this panel. Um, it's a very prestigious panel of GYN oncologists, pathologists, genetic counselors, and of course yourself, Dr. Mesner, as the Director of Education and Training. So thank you for once again including me. So I've been asked to give you an overview of ovarian cancer. So for most patients, the diagnosis of ovarian cancer is suspected with physical examination, symptoms, or radiologic testing. However, the definitive diagnosis is established by surgery where biopsies or removal of the ovaries or fallopian tubes or peritoneal biopsies of the peritoneum are performed. The pathologist makes the diagnosis. Epithelial ovarian cancer is the most common histologic diagnosis. Dr. Kerr will discuss the pathology and the importance of the pathologist as part of the multidisciplinary team. For example, women diagnosed with clear cell, endometrioid, or mucinous ovarian cancer should be offered somatic tumor testing for mismatch repair deficiency as such patients may be appropriate candidates for immune checkpoint inhibition in the event of refractory or recurrent disease. And what this pragmatically means is that your surgeon will work collaboratively with the pathologist and order these tests and then go over these tests with you in the postoperative visit. Complete surgical staging of epithelial ovarian cancer is important for treatment planning and prognostic counseling. Cytoreduction, removal of all visible tumor, also called debulking surgery, is usually performed. In the case of disease spread beyond the ovary, the goal of surgery is to resect the tumor to minimal, ideally zero, gross residual disease. The best surgical outcomes are with gynecological oncologists, and I'm very privileged to be with two outstanding GYN oncologists on the call today. These doctors are specifically trained in the surgical techniques to allow surgical debulking. As the goal of the surgery is to establish the stage of the disease and, again, to remove all visible tumor. A total hysterectomy with bilateral salpingoforectomy or removal of the uterus tubes and ovaries, often pelvic and periodic lymph node dissection, and infracolic or infragastric omentectomy is the usual standard staging procedure. However, bowel resection in or radical pelvic and upper abdominal surgery may be required, and thus a G1 oncologist is trained to do that. However, in approximately a third of patients with advanced disease, the diagnosis is based solely on tissue or fluid obtained um, by image-guided biopsy, paracentesis, or thoracentesis, tapping fluid from the abdomen or chest, as the patient is deemed not to have disease that can be successfully reduced, or the patient has comorbidities precluding a radical reductive surgery. Following surgery and after reviewing the pathology with the pathologist and multidisciplinary tumor board, 
Chemotherapy is usually initiated with what we call adjuvant. That is, after the, chemo, after the surgery, the chemotherapy is called adjuvant platinum and taxane-based chemotherapy. However, some patients, as noted, may receive what we call neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which is chemotherapy given prior to definitive surgery. So the chemotherapy will shrink the tumor, and then surgery becomes an option later on. These, that neoadjuvant is usually reserved for patients with radiologic or clinical findings that suggest advanced disease that may not be amenable to cytoreductive surgery. The standard approach for women requiring first-line chemotherapy for epithelial ovarian cancer is to use a platinum agent with taxane. For women with optimally cytoreduced disease, that is less than a centimeter of residual disease, there are two options. It can be given intravenously or intravenously and intraperitoneally. For women receiving bevacizumab um, with or without bevacizumab maintenance after chemotherapy, IV chemotherapy, intravenous chemotherapy is usually preferred over intraperitoneal. For women with a serous or high-grade endometrioid ovarian cancer, and again, Dr. Kerr will explain um, the different types, when they've completed chemotherapy with a complete or partial response, a PARP inhibitor um, should be considered following chemotherapy in accordance with guidelines from the American Society of Clinical Oncology, although observation only or bevacizumab maintenance are reasonable alternatives. This recommendation is based on the observation that use of a PARP inhibitor as maintenance therapy has demonstrated a progression-free survival advantage even for women without a BRCA1-2 mutation in some but not all trials. While the largest benefit in the absence of a BRCA mutation has been seen in women who have had evidence of what we call homologous repair deficiency, or HRD, women without HRD also appear to derive some benefit, although modest. Again, pointing out the importance of the pathologist as a member of the multidisciplinary team. All patients with a diagnosis of ovarian, fallopian tube, or peritoneal carcinoma should have genetic risk evaluation unrelated to their family history. And uh, Dr. Schelfel will be going into this in more detail. During treatment, it is extremely important that patients relay symptoms and any side effects which may be controlled or prevented. These usually include anti-nausea medications, monitoring of side effects like neuropathy, ice caps, which can prevent or reduce hair loss, and other supportive therapies. During COVID, the use of telehealth was expanded in following up patients after surgery and chemotherapy. Telehealth is broadly defined as the use of electronic information and telecommunications technologies to support healthcare that may or may not involve remote clinical services. A significant limitation is the inability to conduct an in-person physical exam. However, if your healthcare team is using this modality, you should come prepared to these appointments with adequate internet connectivity a list of any problems or concerns. It is often very helpful to have somebody with you on the telehealth call to make sure that you understand and retain all of the information. 
Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ronowitz. That was really outstanding. Just a wonderful introduction to the call today, setting the context actually for today's program and providing so much information to our participants. I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Molly Brewer. Dr. Brewer is Professor and Chair, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, D- Division of Gynecological Oncology, Carol and Ray Neg, Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Connecticut Health Center. Dr. Brewer will be addressing government standard of care, new and emerging treatment approaches, and treatment options for recurrent ovarian cancer. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Brewer. Hi there, so glad to be here. Um, So Dr. Runowitz covered um, part of the standard of care, but I'm going to kind of go into this in a little more depth. Um, You know, one of the things that has happened over the last few years is there has become increasing interest in what we call neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which I think she defined as being chemotherapy given before surgery. Um, And if patients have disease that is considered not to be removable, the majority of which is removable, many people are opting for neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by surgery. Most of us as G1 oncologists, our preference, if we can, is to do what we call cytoreductive surgery, which is removing as much of the cancer as possible. If there's disease in the chest that's not resectable or disease in the liver that's not resectable, then these patients benefit from what we call the neoadjuvant chemotherapy. The standard of care is, as Dr. Ronowitz mentioned, platinum-based, and this is actually usually carboplatin and taxol. There's been increasing interest in using a drug called Avastin, which is a VEGF inhibitor, and this is a drug that actually prohibits new blood vessels from forming. It's Some people are using it as a standard of care in the upfront setting, in other words, immediately after surgery, and then using it for consolidation treatment after they've completed their cytotoxic chemotherapy. But many of us are not using it in the beginning because it hasn't been shown to actually really alter the outcome for patients. And so it's it's really the opinion of the G1 oncologist as to whether they use that. If a patient develops severe neuropathy during chemotherapy, we often change the taxol to taxotere. One of the things that's now become a hallmark of treatment is genetic testing, and we'll hear more about that, but I'm going to just introduce it briefly. This usually involves talking to a genetic counselor, and we know that at least 20 to 25% of all ovarian and fallopian and primary peritoneal cancers actually have a genetic component to them. And so since there are new treatments out, particularly when we we have a genetic alteration, this has become the standard of care. So we used to test just for the BRCA1 and 2 genes, but now we're actually testing for BRCA1 and 2. Um, we're testing for the genes that are associated with Lynch syndrome, the MMR genes. Um, we check we test for an ATM mutation, a CHECK2 mutation, a BARD1 mutation, a RAD50 and 51 mutation, and we're now often testing for a PALB2 mutation. And again, genetics, the genetics folks will go into more detail on this, but we have this syndrome called homologous recombination deficiency, and this means that anything that prohibits the cancer or, or encourages the cancer cell to um, 
to repair its DNA is altered when you have a mutation. And so these have opened up a whole new area of treatment called PARP inhibitors. And these PARP inhibitors are drugs that are given following chemotherapy. The recommendation of ASCO, they came out in 2020 with new guidelines on the use of PARP inhibitors. But they have recommended that the, it not be given with chemotherapy except on a trial. These are drugs that actually prohibit these cancer cells from going down the PARP pathway, which is a repair pathway that repairs the DNA. And if you think about it, what chemotherapy does is it damages DNA. And so if it doesn't outright kill the cell, then um, it can have this DNA damage that then is repaired through this PARP pathway. So these PARP inhibitors have become pretty much the standard of care for a patient with a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. They have the highest response actually to the PARP inhibitors. And these are given after chemotherapy and are given until the patient recurs or doesn't. Um, we do know that we that patients can develop a resistance to these PARP inhibitors, um, some more quickly than others. Um, there are a number of side effects, and you know that's something to discuss with your physician. But there's three currently three approved PARP inhibitors: olaparib, rucaparib, and niraparib. And the recommendation is if a patient has a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, that olaparib probably has the most activity. If a patient has a homologous recombination deficiency but is not BRCA positive, then niraparib is the recommended um, drug to use. Now, if a patient has a, what we call a wild type, or in other words, they don't have any of these alterations, there is some activity with the PARP inhibitors, but they are not as good as the patients with a BRCA mutation or the patients with an HRD deficiency. Um, one of the things that has been explored over the last few years is what if someone fails a PARP inhibitor, then goes on chemotherapy for recurrent cancer, could we reuse a PARP inhibitor? And pretty much the, the standard now is that retreatment has little benefit. Sometimes people have tried retreatment with a different PARP inhibitor, but this has not been something that has shown a lot of activity. One of the ways to think about this is about 20 to 25% of the cancers have a BRCA mutation, and about 50% of them actually have a homologous recombination deficiency. So the majority of patients with ovarian cancer potentially will benefit from a PARP inhibitor. Other things that have been looked at is um, some of these signaling pathway inhibitors, uh, MEK1 and MEK2. These are a branch of the MAP kinase uh, pathways, and these are these are often altered. And there are certain drugs that are being developed that that uh, impact this pathway. One of the things that's been worked on for probably the last 10 to 15 years is the immunology of ovarian cancer. And part of what we understand now is that patients with ovarian cancer actually have an altered immune system. And we see an upregulation of what are called T regulatory cells, and we see a downregulation of some of the cells that protect against cancer. One of the drugs that has come out in some of the other cancers, particularly melanoma, very effective, is a drug called pembrolizumab, and this is a PD1 inhibitor. And unfortunately, in ovarian cancer, only about 10% or less of patients will respond to this. 
but it is one of the things that we test when we do additional testing. Um, many of us are now sending these tumors off, particularly if a cancer comes back, for some of the genomic pathways that might be altered, because sometimes that can give us an indication of new pathways that we can actually target. At the current time, there are really no vaccines approved, but this is coming um, as we understand more about the immune system. Um, one of the things that we have found in some of our trials is that, again, about 10% of people will respond to this, um, this pembrolizumab. And so anti, it's an anti-PD-1, and this actually is being tested for when we do this additional testing. Part of the problem with ovarian cancer is the tumor itself doesn't really give a good immune response like some of the other cancers. And tumor mutation burden is actually low. And so again, these are not necessarily things that, um, that we look at as being applicable to everyone. One of the new things that's being worked on is the CAR T cells. And they're actually taking these T cells, which are some of the cells that protect against cancers, and they're genetically modifying them. So again, this is, these are, these are, these are um, approaches that are only on studies right now, but I think does have some promise um, as we know more. And now the last topic I was going to talk about is um, what do we do when these cancers come back? And so when we look at these cancers, if you've gone more than six months from the time you completed chemotherapy, we consider the cancers to be what we call platinum sensitive. If you've gone less than six months from completing chemotherapy, we consider them to be platinum resistant. So the current standard of care for a platinum sensitive cancer is to use two agents rather than one. Um, we get better activity and much of, the, much of the work has been done looking at Avastin in the recurrent setting and this does have promise in the recurrent setting. It, it has better outcomes than we do in the upfront setting. If your cancer has recurred within six months of completing chemotherapy, they're considered to be platinum resistant. And so there are a number of chemotherapies that we go to, and that means that we don't use carboplatin or we don't use cisplatin, but we use some of these other agents. Um, the most promising ones are the gemcitabines and the doxels. Um, again, we often combine these with um, Avastin. We often combine these with other agents. One of the problems with giving a lot of chemotherapy, and one of the things that was done in the past was looking at what happened if we gave 12 or 18 months of chemotherapy. And we've moved away from that because right now what we find is that the bone marrow really won't tolerate that. And the more of this chemotherapy we give, the more likely we are to develop some real bone marrow problems. So I'm going to end with that. I think that there's promise for ovarian cancer patients. We're getting new drugs and new approaches all the time. And so what I tell my patients is, you know, if your cancer comes back a year from now, then we'll know a lot more than we know now. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Brewer. That was really excellent and really outstanding. And also the what you said is that um, if something happens, we'll know so much more in a year. And that's and that's what really will help people a lot to think about things keep changing all the time and new and new developments. So th thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you as well during the Q&A. Uh, thank you. 
And our next speaker is Dr. Andrea Hageman, and Dr. Hageman is oncologic oncology surgeon, associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology, division of gynecologic oncology, Washington University School of Medicine. And Dr. Hageman will be addressing clinical trial updates, what's new in the prevention and management of treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and talking with your health team about quality of life concerns and follow-up care. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hageman. Thank you so much. It's really wonderful to have heard our first two speakers and to be a part of this today. Um, really appreciate the opportunity. Um, and I think that both Dr. Runowitz and Dr. Brewer set me up really well for clinical trial updates um, with all of those introductions. And I would agree with Dr. Brewer, it's a very hopeful time in ovarian cancer research. There's a lot of momentum for clinical trials. And, you know, I think one thing to mention about clinical trials is just that, you know, unfortunately, funding for ovarian cancer-specific research, um, you know, is always a little bit um, in, in doubt, right? We have to keep raising awareness for the importance of this. And luckily, we have a very good um, Department of Defense ovarian cancer research program, which has been initiated to support high-impact cutting-edge research, filling unmet needs. And this, over the past year, has been a lot of the source for funding along with the Foundation for Women's Cancer and Society of Gynecologic Oncology. So we're really, uh, we tell our you know, burgeoning young researchers that it's not only is important to do the research, but also to advocate for it and to you know, raise awareness for the importance of funding um, to keep these clinical trials going. And it's with these clinical trials that we've made such advances in understanding about things like PARP inhibitors and the molecular determinants of ovarian cancer. So just cannot emphasize enough how everyone here really can play a role in advocating for the importance of clinical research. Um, but yeah, I think the, the main thing is to determine what type of ovarian cancer that you have in terms of what research you're going to be and trials are going to be open for you. We know it's not just one basket of ovarian cancer, but the um, you know, first of all, clarifying the histology um, most of what we've been talking about deals with high-grade serous ovarian cancer, which is our most common epithelial ovarian cancer. But there have been some advances for low-grade serous ovarian cancer, too. This is a type of ovarian cancer that's more hormonally responsive, uh, potentially more slower growing than high-grade serous. And when we look at the molecular profile of low-grade cancer, we find that um, it's actually not, um, not the... Um, the tumor suppressor genes that we usually see with high-grade serous cancer are very different. Um, so now we have trials specific for low-grade serous ovarian cancer um, looking at hormone um, estrogen inhibition um, that may help even better than chemotherapy. And so we have a randomized trial that's open for low-grade serous ovarian cancer right now that's going to answer a very important question. And then there are other trials that would you potentially would fall into if you had a non-epithelial tumor, such as a germ cell ovarian cancer or a stromal tumor. But for the most part, we've been talking about high-grade serous cancer, and really they're the most exciting trials, um, you know, I think do involve PARP inhibitors and the combination. So how do we harness the immune system along with the DNA repair mechanisms, along with the microenvironment? Um, where we know that those three avenues of, of hitting, the, hitting the tumor might be 
really important. So combination trials using PARP inhibitors plus immunotherapy um, are open right now for, for certain tumor types. Um, looking at immunotherapy given through the intraperitoneal approach is open either in neoadjuvant chemotherapy or after an, an optimal cytoreduction. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of the trials are now learn, uh, using what we've learned individually and combining these approaches at different time points in the disease. And, and I think one thing that's always important is is understanding how am I a, you know, am I possibly a candidate for one of these clinical trials? And sometimes that really depends on how much treatment you've gotten in in the past. And so. Now, as a group, as student oncologists, we try to um, make sure we have a roadmap for our clinical trials. You know, when, when you're first diagnosed, it's probably the best time to um, utilize some of these, these clinical trials in terms of PARP inhibitors or bevacizumab. Sometimes after you've received you know, three or four lines of chemotherapy, um, unfortunately, just because of pretreatment and bone marrow issues that Dr. Brewer mentioned and everything, there may not be as much um, candidacy for clinical trials. So one thing that we're trying to do as a group is just making sure that we, we know this is, a long, this is a long road with ovarian cancer. Um, unfortunately, recurrences can happen, but as we're learning more and more, we want to have offer you the, the most updated, you know, upfront options for you, and, and that means we have to plan ahead, too, so making sure that you can, can stay a candidate for these clinical trials um, as things go on. Um, Dr. Brewer mentioned platinum sensitivity and platinum resistance, and for a platinum resistant patient, there are um, really exciting kind of fun clinical trials. I think one of them has been this tumor treating sales trial we've had where um, we can give weekly taxol. Um, as a backbone, and then patients wear a backpack, actually, that allows for radiation to go um, to a, a point in the body where the disease might be. Um, and that's just kind of a, a you know, one of the out-of-the-box um, things that, that some innovative investigator thought of that has actually shown to have really good treatment effects um, for our patients. Um, and that's one that's open, um, kind of coming to an end here um, in national accrual. And we're looking at, at more things like that. So the combinations of things are really where we are heading with clinical trials as we learn more and more about the histology. And then I think um, kind of segueing into quality of life concerns, one thing that I'm really interested in, our genetic counselor will speak to more, um, looking towards prevention and early detection, early detection. And so a lot of this, we've talked about genetic testing and finding those BRC1 or other homologous or combination deficiency mutations that really impact how we treat ovarian cancer, it can also impact family members and potentially their risk for, for preventing ovarian cancer, their chance to prevent this. Um, and, you know, for women who are premenopausal and may carry a mutation such as BRCA1 or 2 that puts them at high risk for ovarian cancer, a lot of different questions come up. Is it worth it to have my ovaries removed before I go into menopause? What are the side effects of going into menopause early when I have a choice and when I don't necessarily have cancer yet? So some very exciting research is taking place um, based on this fallopian tube hypothesis where we think quite a bit of ovarian cancer actually originates in the fallopian tube. 
and in our mutation carriers, when we look at tubes and ovaries that were removed for prevention, we see many of the precancerous cells actually are found in the fallopian tubes, not in the ovaries. And so there is some very exciting research being done looking at the possibility of taking out the fallopian tubes in women who've completed childbearing as a risk-reducing method, um, keeping, allowing them to keep their ovaries potentially a little bit longer. Now, we're far away from knowing if this is um, effective enough, just removing the fallopian tubes, but it opens up a lot of windows uh, for, for long-term studies. Hopefully that will be going on for a long time. Um, and we are doing surgical choice studies now for mutation carriers who want to reduce their risk um, and also ask these really important quality of life questions. And those quality of life questions often come down to menopausal symptoms as well as sexual function in these premenopausal women. So there's a lot to be learned over the next few years and next, I would say 20 to 40 years about that. Very exciting. And then other treatment side effects, and unfortunately with many of our, many of our treatments for both upfront and recurrent disease involve taxings. And that leads to um, long-standing neuropathy in many of, many of our patients. And so, you know, the cure for neuropathy or prevention of neuropathy eludes us. It really remains something that we need to keep working on. Um, some studies, though, are out there looking at acupuncture, looking at other drugs besides duloxetine and gabapentin, um, and then other side effects that affect many people when they're going through treatment, fatigue, pain, sleep disturbance, anxiety, depression. Um, you know, I think that it's really important to involve our psychologists. Um, and if you know, we, some cancer centers, we're lucky to have integrated psychological care during treatment, and that's a very important thing. Um, I think just opening up to your provider about what you're experiencing on these that chemotherapy options. Sometimes we get so into our, our histology and our, you know, our lab review and everything like that that we may forget to ask. And so I think just having that open discussion about how this treatment is affecting you, what can we do, do we need to dose reduce, do we need to change things around, um, you know, what, what side effect is too much to go through, um, how can we find that balance? So I think just continuing to communicate about these are really important. Um, and then I just wanted to mention one other study that's out there for um, ovarian cancer survivors. It's called Living Well. And in our, our COVID times, when we're doing a lot of things online and you know, telemedicine, this is actually a web-based program that's open across the country looking to improve quality of life in rural and urban ovarian cancer survivors. Um, actually, is looking at two different interventions. One is a mindful living group targeting stress management skills like relaxation and coping. And then another is a healthy lifestyles group, uh, which targets nutrition, sleep, and exercise. And there are online meetings and online sessions um, that people can participate in um, once they are finished with their ovarian cancer treatment. Um, and this is actually something that we can probably provide a link to, but it's open across the country. Um, and that's a really cool thing. So I think that the more we learn about the molecular determinants, of course, the more we can target our therapies, but then we also are continuing to focus on quality of life. It's so important um, to not take for granted that, you know, quality of life suffers when you're on these treatment trials and you're going through treatment. 
Uh, so continuing to just bring up things that are that you're going through is so important, and we may even have more clinical trials to offer for that um, side of things as well. So I'll end there, and happy to take any questions regarding any of those things. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hageman. That was really outstanding and really covered quite a bit, actually, um, and, and also um, both from um, all the clinical trial updates and then, of course, all the issues about preventing and managing treatment side effects and um, some of those um, issues that are so important to, to manage and um, and then um, and then a communication with one's healthcare team so that one is in touch with um, what concerns are what are the concerns and who to bring in from the team. So thank you, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr, and Dr. Kerr is a pathologist, um, um, Hospital Pathology Associates, PA, um, Division of Cytopathology, Gynecologic and Perinatal Pathology, Molecular Diagnostic. The pathologist for next generation sequencing uh, development and practice, Alina Health Laboratory, a part of Abbott Northwestern Hospital. And Dr. Kerr will be addressing the role of the pathologist, understanding a pathology report, current issues with electronic medical records, phone, computer apps, and immediate release of radiology and pathology reports to patients or referred to often as open notes. And it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you today. It is my great pleasure to describe the role of pathology in ovarian cancer care. So first, I want to define pathology and what a pathologist does. I think of pathology as all of the behind-the-scenes work that occurs in a clinical laboratory in the practice of medical care. So every time you get blood drawn or a biopsy or a surgery, the laboratory handles those specimens from you and, and performs tests. A medical laboratory is made up of whole teams of staff who specialize in various kinds of testing, including blood testing, testing for infections, small biopsy evaluation, and then the processing of these large surgical resection specimens as are produced during major cancer surgeries. Basically, anything that is drawn out of or removed or sampled from a patient in a medical setting is handled in a pathology laboratory, and a pathologist is the doctor who leads this laboratory and is responsible for those test results. So next I want to talk to you about those biopsy and surgery specimens and how they get from a patient to a pathologist for the various tests that are needed for the diagnosis and choosing the best therapy. So patients with ovarian cancer will often first go to the doctor with bloating or abdominal fullness or have a pelvic mass detected on examination or have fluid around the organs. And um, when fluid is present or tumor spread is suspected on imaging, a pathology diagnosis can be made at that time by taking out some of that fluid or taking a small tumor sample with a needle through the skin. The cancer coming from other organs, such as uh, gastrointestinal tract or sometimes infections or other conditions, can look similar on imaging studies to ovarian cancer. So it is very important to have a diagnosis by a pathologist. Sometimes surgery might actually be the first step before a pathology diagnosis is made, and this happens when there's a large ovarian mass that the surgeon wants to get out intact so it doesn't spill into the abdomen or get punctured. 
after the ovary is taken out, the pathologist can actually examine that tumor while the patient is still asleep in the operating room through a process called frozen section. The pathologist examines the mass that was taken out during surgery and um, takes a small piece of it, looks at it under a microscope, and then gives feedback to the surgeon about what it might be. So if it's, it looks like a benign tumor, the surgery might be stopped after taking out the mass. But if the, um, the tumor is definitely malignant, then they tell the surgeon, yes, you know, it's, it's cancer, go forward with the debulking surgery, take out the ovary, uterus, omentum, and lymph nodes, possibly as part of a staging procedure. So then after the biopsy or surgery is done, the tissue is processed into little blocks of wax. And then those are cut into fine, thin sections that are placed onto glass slides to look at under a microscope with stains. The um, high-grade serous carcinoma is what we've mostly been talking about today, and that's the most common type of advanced tubo ovarian cancer. But there are actually many other types of ovarian cancer um, that some patients on this call might have, such as uh, low-grade serous carcinoma, as Dr. Hageman mentioned. Um, endometrioid or clear cell carcinoma, where mismatch repair enzyme status or Lynch syndrome may be more important. Uh, mucinous carcinoma, sex cord stromal tumors like granulosa cell tumor. There are really several other types of ovarian cancer that are important, and when you have that diagnosis, the treatment may be much different than is recommended for high-grade serous carcinoma. These different kinds of cancers um, have like I said, very different approaches to therapy. So um, that pathology report is, is very important. It usually takes a few days to prepare a pathology report, but it may take longer for ovarian cancers that are rare or have unusual characteristics where multiple studies or opinions from other pathologists need to be obtained. So next I'll talk about the pathology report itself, which has multiple components. Uh, the final diagnosis is one component. There may also be a comment about the diagnosis to explain anything difficult or unusual about the case. Um, there's often a description of the way the sample looked when it was received and how it looked under a microscope. The results of any special studies that were done to help make the diagnosis will be recorded in the report. And you know, I know these pathology reports may be difficult to understand, even for those with a good medical background. So be sure to go over them with your cancer team. I encourage you to keep an electronic copy or a paper copy of all of your pathology and molecular genetics reports for future reference. And this is because the reports could even be important years down the road when your memory has faded a bit from your cancer diagnosis and treatment. So for example, if I'm looking at a biopsy of a lung nodule in a patient and I have all of their prior pathology reports uh, for prior cancers, that very technical information in those reports can be used to save time and money when I'm making a diagnosis for the current uh, tumor sample. Um, finally, uh, Dr. Mesner also asked me to say a word about recent changes in online access to your medical records over the last few years. So over the last few years, um, many care teams have started communicating with patients through online applications or portals which work on your smartphone or computer. And this can be a very convenient way of staying in touch with your team between appointments, especially during COVID. Uh, you are often able to access your pathology reports, laboratory results, 
CT scans and visit notes from your doctors. Um, the one major difference that we've seen recently is that you might now see these um, uh, in these online portals that um, your pathology reports and radiology scans could be immediately released to you, where previously um, these reports had a hold on them for a few days to let your doctor review for before releasing those to you. So now your pathology report, because of the new regulations, might be released to you immediately online after the pathologist uh, releases the report. And your doctor might not have had a chance to see it first. And I can tell you I personally just had an experience with this myself after having a skin biopsy, which seems, you know, kind of inconsequential. But once that pathology report was released, I received not only a text message but an email immediately that my pathology report was ready to look at within seconds. So um, having this information immediately available can be really overwhelming to some patients, but could be, you know, really empowering to others. So just be aware of this, and um, it's something to talk with your doctor about ahead of time. So, for example, um, do you want to have the results of your biopsy immediately or see the CT scan yourself, or do you want to wait and talk with your doctor? Um, do you want to have your support system around you when you have your results? These are the individual decisions that you need to make, but something to think about now that everything is available and immediately and so rapidly. So um, that's all I have for today. Thanks so much for listening to me talk about pathology results, and I'm turning the conference back over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was really outstanding. And, of course, we are so fortunate to have a pathologist on the call today because it is um, this is an area that people often um, – it, it really, it really, the pathology report is so important for their treatment and, and going forward. And yet, um, we they often don't realize. They also don't realize that they can also can talk to a pathologist sometimes too. So that's another thing. Um, probably during the Q and A, we'll bring that up again because I, I know that um, you do speak to patients sometimes, and other pathologists do as well. So thank you, um, and um, uh, thank you so much. And our next speaker is Akara Shofil and. Uh, Ms. Schofel will be is a licensed certified genetic counselor, um, Department of Clinical Genomics, uh, Mayo Clinic. And Ms. Schofel will be addressing the role of the genetic counselor, uh, questions to ask the genetic counselor to increase your understanding of ovarian cancer. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Schofel. Hi, thank you for having me today and thank you for that introduction, Carolyn. Um, so the main role of a genetic counselor is to help facilitate and guide patients diagnosed with ovarian cancer through the whole process of genetic testing. Um, what we know is that the average woman has a risk of developing about ovarian cancer of about 1% to 2% over her lifetime. And for women who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer, there is up to a 20% chance that we would find an underlying genetic cause for that ovarian cancer. And that likelihood of finding a genetic cause is higher in women who have a personal or family history of breast, ovarian, prostate, pancreatic, colon, or uterine cancer. And we know that women who have an underlying genetic cause for their ovarian cancer actually had a, a higher likelihood of developing ovarian cancer than the average woman because of that gene mutation. 
So the, the first genes identified linked to hereditary ovarian cancer were the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, sometimes referred to as BRCA. And prior to 2013, those were really the only two genes that we had available for genetic testing. And now it's much more common for us to do a panel looking at multiple genes, kind of like Dr. Brewer had mentioned, um, some of the newer genes we'll test include BRIP1, RAD51C, RAD51D, the Lynch syndrome genes, and some others as well. At a genetic counseling appointment, the counselor will review you know, what will be tested on that genetic test, the possible results that we can get from the genetic testing, and what those results would mean for the patient and their family members. We also often discuss what the insurance coverage of the testing will be and review some laws surrounding genetic discrimination. And then genetic testing is typically performed on either a blood or saliva sample. And once those result, results become available, the genetic counselor reviews them and interprets the genetic test results for the patient. And of course, one of the benefits of genetic testing that's already been discussed today is how it can affect the treatment of ovarian cancer. Um, while many women are eligible for a PARP inhibitor, um, you know, like Dr. Runowitz mentioned, it does seem to be more effective in women who have mutations in either BRCA1 or BRCA2. Um, and, and women with ovarian cancer may also be eligible for those PARP inhibitors if there is a BRCA mutation or the homologous re recombination uh, repair in their deficiency in their tumor. And so that additional testing may be ordered by the oncologist or gynecologic oncologist. Um, another benefit of genetic testing is identifying other cancer risks in the patient and her relatives. If a gene mutation is identified, this may tell us that the patient has an increased risk of developing other cancers. And at that point, we can provide some recommendations for some higher risk screening or some preventive measures to either help prevent a future cancer or detect it at a very early stage. And also when a gene mutation is identified, that tells us that we should be recommending genetic testing for the patient's relatives. In general, when a mutation is identified, the first degree relatives, like parents, full siblings, and children have a 50% chance of having that same gene mutation and of course, other relatives could be affected as well. And for the relatives who do test positive, those higher risk screening options and preventive measures can be discussed and implemented. And genetics is a really quickly changing field. Uh, we're making discoveries every day about the hereditary causes of cancer and how we can improve our genetic tests to identify hereditary causes in more people. I think we will also continue to gain insight into the exact cancer risks associated with each gene, as there is some uncertainty at this point, uh, especially for some of the more newly discovered genes beyond those BRCA genes. And so genetic counselors are really remaining at the forefront of those changes in this field and helping to educate patients and providers about those changes. Genetic counselors are also available to help families cope with the diagnosis of a hereditary cancer and really empower them to become more proactive regarding their cancer risks 
and uh, taking the measures that they, they can to, to really manage those cancer risks. So that is everything that I have for today. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, um, Michelle. That was really excellent. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And we're so fortunate to have you on the call today, uh, genetic counselor. It's very important. So thank you so much. Um, and um, I'm just going to say a few words about uh, cancer care services. Um, I'm Carolyn Nestor. I'm Director of Education Training and Cancer Care. And um, we, um, Cancer Care is a national organization. Um, it's been around for about 75 years, and we have about 40 master's level, tra master's level trained oncology social workers. And um, they staff our Hope Line, um, uh, which is a call people can call into us um, during the week, um, Monday through Friday, during business hours, and um, can pretty much immediately get connected to one of our social workers. So what do we actually do? So first of all, people who call often have a question or concern, so we offer them support and try to help with resolving that question or concern they may have. We also offer online support groups. Um, we have a case management team. Um, who actually help people to get resources that we may not have to connect them. And we don't just give you a bunch of places to call, but we actually, um, the staff actually will, will go with you um, virtually by phone or um, electronically to an organization that we think would be helpful to you and connect you. And if that doesn't work, we'll try another until we get the, you the services you need. Um, we also do offer uh, these workshops. We also offer financial assistance, um, both from our Cancer Care Financial Assistance programs with helping people with just general financial assistance. And then we have a copay foundation. You're not the only organization that has a copay foundation, and these are wonderful organizations that help with some of the extraordinary costs of, um, of treatment um, that some of you may be experiencing. And these are much larger grants, and um, they can be very helpful. And we also have uh, publications. Um, so that's just a quick snapshot of the services that we offer at Cancer Care. And you'll be getting a survey monkey at the end of today, well, actually tomorrow. Um, um, and it won't give you, um, it'll ask you about what you thought of the program today, but it will also provide you with all kinds of, um, any type of brief uh, references that we provide to you during the program or that we gave ahead of time, we'll repeat again, so you'll, have, you'll leave the program with additional information as well. Now, before we move into the Q&A, so stay tuned, hold on to your questions, I'm just going to ask you just a few more questions, and then we'll go right into the Q&A, and, um, and we'll take your questions at that point. So I'm going to start with our first question, and our first question, and for those of you who are live streaming, you'll be able to see the questions, and you'll be able to rate your answer. So as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the important role of staging and testing and precision medicine in informing the treatment for ovarian cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the current standard of care, new treatment approaches, and follow-up care for ovarian cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of treatment options for recurrent ovarian cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, 
I have greater knowledge of how to ask questions and work with the healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to manage the symptoms, side effects, discomfort, and pain of ovarian cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of participating in clinical trials for ovarian cancer as a treatment option. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in this. It's really very important to us to see what you know coming into the program and now what you've learned so that as we plan future programs, we can be sure that we plan programs that most meet your needs. That's really the most important part of this. And now we're going to bring all of our speakers on board. I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board and to explain to you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Norma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And again, Excellent. to ask a question, please press star 1. And we have a lot of questions from our online participants. So I'm just going to start with the first question, um, and this will be for Dr. Runowitz. Is HIPEC still used, H-I-P-E-C, still used? Right, right. So HIPEC is intraperitoneal um, hyperthermia where the uh, fluid that goes into the belly is heated up. And there are some enthusiasts who um, are very supportive of it, but I think in general um, it's not delivered on its promise and, in my opinion, should be restricted to clinical trials. Excellent. Thank you. And another question, um, and this will be um, for um, for Dr. Brewer. Um, do you have any tips on how to remain in remission indefinitely? That's a tough one. You know, I think that, honestly, I think some of the newer um, drugs that we're using, the PARP inhibitors, will probably help many women stay in remission longer. Um, you know, there's been some work looking at exercise. There's been work looking at diet. Um, and I think in ovary cancer, it hasn't really shown to be helpful. You know, I think that um, staying healthy, feeling good, and exercising makes you mentally more healthy and physically more healthy. But I'm not sure that it really prevents it, the cancer from coming back. So really right now, our biggest... Our biggest bang for the buck, if you would, is with the PARP inhibitors. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, uh, thank you. And our, a question for Dr. Hageman. What are side effects or symptoms I should immediately tell my doctor about? Um, yes. I, I mean, I encourage everyone to, I mean, I guess you shouldn't tell them every tiny little thing that's happening, but you certainly are welcome to because I think part of the communication is figuring out you know, that relationship of, of telling, of, of sharing all of these side effects and, and how the office that you're working with approaches this. Uh, but in general, I think the biggest, you know, the concerning ones, um, I do think neuropathy kind of goes under the under the radar a little bit sometimes because it's not as, um, it's not as terrible as like nausea, vomiting, um, things like that that are going to just immediately 
come to our attention because we'll see it happening. We can't see neuropathy. We can't see sexual function um, problems. We can't see hormonal um, changes, you know, those types of things. So I think the ones to really just even be more vocal about than you may not think is that, you know, if we can, we can see if you're getting, not getting enough nutrition or, um, you know, we can maybe see that on labs. We can see that in how you're presenting, but we, the things that we can't see um, are the ones I think should be really up, even more vocal about. I, I don't know if that's helpful or not, but I think you're just, just sometimes the things that we can't see are the ones that we might not ask about if, if, you know, we're focusing on things that we can see. So call your doctor whenever you have something that you're concerned about. Is would that be a good answer? Would that does that make sense? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. And then even if you, I, mean, I think the the main thing I would say is that that we are, I, I think we're we're reaching a point where we all are understanding this now that we need to be more upfront about quality of life concerns as well. So the message is. Like, don't hide those things either. Um, we're ready to talk about it. We want to help you. We may have resources that we just forgot to mention. Um, hopefully, the whole office is going to be upfront about those things. But sometimes you have to be your own advocate and um, bring up things that are, are really bothering you. So um, we, we want to talk about it all. And just one last question um, for our genetic counselor. Should I get genetic testing to see if I have any mutations like BRCA? Yes, uh, we definitely recommend genetic testing for anyone with a diagnosis of ovarian cancer. And really, even if there's no other cancer in your family, uh, that is a recommendation and most often would be covered by your insurance. Excellent. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. We definitely could go on for at least another hour. We have so many questions. And um, I... Um, you know, I certainly, um, I just want to thank all of our speakers. I also want to thank all of our participants today um, because you've really been outstanding um, as well, um, asking such great questions. And again, we have many more. So in concluding, I just want to say a few words about wrapping things up before we do end the call today. Um, for those of you who asked a question, or for those of you who have a question yet to ask, or for those of you who are thinking of a question that you'd like to ask, we would encourage all of you to go back to your treating healthcare team and ask them the questions that you, are, what you either asked today or would like to ask, because they know the most about you. That's very important. And your healthcare team consists of many different people, and many of those people, of course, um, on your team different disciplines can offer a great deal in terms of helping you with your questions and concerns. Um, also, we are living in rather challenging times, um, and so the issue is to get support also from your team, both the medical care that you need, but also remember your team does consist of people providing um, emotional and social and practical and financial support as well. Many of your hospitals have extensive teams that can offer all kinds of services that you may not have ever taken advantage of. So just always be aware of, of using your team. Um, and lastly, at this time, many people feel that they're alone in coping with ovarian cancer or coping with any type of cancer. And we want you to know that you're now part of a community of support, both your healthcare team, you've got services from Cancer Care, and we'll be also sending you a whole listing of other organizations that also provide support to people with ovarian cancer as well. Take advantage of those services. Online support groups, we would recommend that you participate in professionally led groups um, that are 
from credible institutions. That's very important. And that when you have a question, go to your healthcare team with it and be very thoughtful about where you go for your information. We'll provide you some very credible sources to go to. Stay with those and, and really stay with sources that are that are credible in terms of having done the research and that are very up-to-date with the information they provide. So I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.